0: So we have a busy morning this morning. Uh, We are very excited, I'm very excited, to return to our series of talking about the fruit in the Christian life that we believe God wants every one of us to bear. And so we've spent a number of weeks on this, and we're going to return to it this morning. And, And this sermon is designed to be short and efficient, believe it or not. And it is going to conclude in the ordination and installation of a new deacon at Greenwood Presbyterian Church. And so the sermon will contextualize that as well as reminding us all of the fruit that every one of us is called to bear. And hopefully all of this together will encourage us to see God at work in us and through us and that we can labor more and more in that direction. The scriptures are clear that faithful Christians... Are called to bear much fruit the scriptures are clear we don't want to be the fruit tree that is barren and not producing fruit in season as it should and so we're reminded Old Testament and New Testament bear much fruit be the church be the people of God and so we've looked at different Um, Fruit that the Scriptures emphasize and encourage believers to have. The fruit of worship, personal and public worship. The fruit of evangelism and missions, done personally and done corporately as the church. The fruit of prayer, also done privately, personally, but also done publicly. The fruit of fellowship and the fruit of hospitality... Something every one of us is called to bear in some capacity. And then today is another one of those double terms. I'm just going to call it giving and service. That every one of us as a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, you are called to give and to serve, which is to say, being in the church is, is not a spectator sport we're all participants we're to give and serve in various ways and so that's what i want to draw our attention to this morning and the scripture passage there are several this morning but the first is luke chapter 6 verses 31 to 38 and here you're going to hear more jesus in the sermon on the mount talking about who his people should be how we should be shaped differently from the world in which we live and that affects our giving and our hearts We're to be a generous people, unlike we naturally are. So give your attention to God's Word. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But I say, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them... Without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, so it will be measured to you. Let's pray again for God to shape us by his word. Lord, would you now open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, our hearts to believe what is sinfully true about every one of us, but how your spirit and your word reshape us and make us to be something this world does not understand. Lord, may that be more and more true of every one of us. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, early in my marriage, I have memories of when my wife and I would go out for dinner, go out for ice cream, maybe we'd be visiting a town, I don't know why, but we would playfully talk about different little entrepreneurial jobs, restaurants, candy stores that we would one day open. And I had one that to this day is just my favorite. And it probably tells you a lot about my love for food. But I thought, you know, one day I would like to open an ice cream parlor. And I would name the ice cream parlor. This was the fun part of the interaction. We would come up with little names for it. I would like to name my ice cream parlor Oops Scoops. (laughs) And here's why. Here's the beauty of it. Because at Paul's Oops Scoops you always get an additional scoop of ice cream for free. So if you ordered a double chocolate cone, the person who would be working for me, maybe it would be me myself, I don't know, he would accidentally put a third scoop of ice cream on there. And when he served it, he would always have to say, oops, I accidentally put an extra scoop of ice cream on there for free. Now, why do I think that's just great and somebody should do that? Probably because I'm a glutton, number one. But there's just something. The kid in me just loved abundance when somebody would shower you, when grandmother would shower you with baked goods or with treats. Or, Are you with me? Do you understand? The image of abundance is good. It brings joy to the young heart and maybe the middle-aged heart, to think about things like oops scoops. So just think about that for a moment. Put that thought in the back of your head that perhaps you resonate with me that images of abundance, being generous when you don't have to be, there's something very beautiful about that. There's something very attractive about that beyond ice cream. So two simple points this morning, and the first is this. Christians are to be imitators of Christ and are to bear much fruit. We've already said that. We are called to be like Him, like the Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but specifically the Son who has modeled for us everything about what it is to walk rightly on the earth. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, we're to be imitators of the Lord Jesus in everything that we do. We're to model the imago dei, the image of God. And that should affect everything everything about every one of us. The kind of husband, the kind of father, the kind of wife, the kind of mother, the kind of child, the kind of employee, the kind of student, the kind of athlete, the kind of shopper in the grocery store. Everything is supposed to be more and more like Jesus himself and in that way we bear much fruit rather than being fruitless. Rather than being like the tree that doesn't produce fruit in season as it should. You've heard before, perhaps, the summary that was written in a letter in the second century about Christians in Rome. It was a letter written by an anonymous historical author to Diognetus, who talked about the Christians and the reputation that they had. In Rome. And this is somewhat long, but you need to capture this. Listen to what is said of the Christians then. And of course, my question is is anything like this said about us and who we are in Greenwood or in the church universal in the world that we know? Here's the summary and then the quote. Sometime in the second century, an unnamed Christian writer wrote an apology for the Christian faith, which he addressed to a Roman official by the name of Diognetus. And this is his summary of Christians. The Christians in this place cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use some peculiar form of speech. They do not follow in a centric manner of life. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, they seem to fit in, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as if foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They marry like everyone else and they beget children, but they do not cast out their offspring. They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey all the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men they are persecuted. They are poor poor yet they ma- excuse me they are poor and yet they make many others rich they are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance they are reviled and yet they bless and when they are affronted they still pay due respect they are treated by the jews as foreigners and enemies And they are hunted down by the Greeks. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity in the same way the Christians love those who hate them. Isn't that remarkable? What a peculiar people! What a holy people they had for their reputation. And in all of that, part of what was remarkable about them was that they had a loose grasp on their possessions and their money. There was something about them that was otherworldly. It was as if their citizenship was somewhere else. And the mantra that he who dies with the most toys wins, it hadn't captured their heart perhaps so much like it does American Christians in our culture. There's something very beautiful, very distinct, very peculiar when God's people loosen their grasp on the idols of this world and they model what it is to live something very different, something that this world does not understand. So how about you and how about me? How is our grasp on things? Are we we grasping our money and our things to cling to it and hold on to it because he who dies with the most toys wins? Or do we have a loose grasp with everything of this life in such a way as to share it, to see it as God's gift to us to share with others? There's something very Christian, something very redeemed about that. Because that is being like Yahweh, like the Lord. That's modeling the image of God in the way that we should. But you and I, we love to grasp and hold on to and protect things that Jesus said are what moth and rust destroy. Things that thieves can break in and steal. Things that will not last beyond this life. So I know that's an uncomfortable word. Here goes preacher talking about money and possessions. That's the sermon we don't want him to preach, right? Well, it's just as hard to preach it as it is to hear it because every one of our hearts is a grasping heart, right? Hold on to, keep for yourself, save for yourself, stash it away. There's something about the human heart that's very fallen and very ungodly. So, we're called to bear much fruit, to be imitators of Christ. We're probably not very good at doing any of that. But, point number two. The call upon all Christians is to give and to serve in ministry to others. Let me make that very clear. Every one of us, if if your faith is in Christ, you're called to give and called to serve. You are not called to grasp and hold on to and protect We're called to have giving and serving hearts. That's the fruit that we're emphasizing this morning. Something about God and His Word and His Spirit enables us to to loosen our grasp on things and to say, okay, Lord, how can I share out of the abundance that you give me or out of whatever you give me, how can I have an eye for those who have less and how can I give and serve them? Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, says this. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many, Do you see the fruit? To serve and to give. And we're to be like Him. And He did not come to be served, but to serve. And so it's inescapable as a fruit of the church. Every one of us, we have to be reminded because we will start grasping things again. We'll start putting our life in people or places or things. And that will always leave us empty-handed in the end. And so consider your heart, consider your dreams, consider your focus, consider your passions. Are you grasping and holding on to, or is any part of you saying, okay, what, what can I give and where can I give it? Or how can I serve? What can I do? How do we give? What kind of giving are we talking about? Well, the way it's described in the Bible is that we're to give generously, we're to give sacrificially. And we're to give cheerfully. Go boy. You gotta be happy about doing it. Uh, What is enjoyable about being sacrificed? Giving sacrificially, it just sounds horrible, doesn't it? Well, this is what God's called us to do: to be generous, to be sacrificial, and somehow to be made cheerful in doing it. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Do you hear it? It's all there. So generously where our fallen and sinful selves would say, well, let me, I'll just pull out with my two fingers for others, but I'll grasp with my fist for myself. Right? That's the image. And and the Lord says, no, you're to be my people in the earth. You've got to have a new heart, a new will, a new perspective on everything. Or you're going to be a grasper and a holder and will do nothing with the gifts that God has given you. So that's how we give. We give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully. But what do we give Let me give you three things to think about, because I know some of you are concluding right now, look, I don't have a dime to give. There are still other ways you can give and can serve in the kingdom. We give generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully of our time, of our talents, and of our money, our resources. That's how God's people have always been. I don't have time to look in the Old Testament this morning. We'll do this at a future time. But the very character and nature of God's people and how they were to serve and give and take people into their homes and to treat them as their own. There's something about using our time, our talent, our money, whatever the Lord has given us, it can be used for giving and for service in His name. Let me give you a practical example from the real lived life of a friend of mine. I talked to him this week and was refreshed on the details. He's a good friend. I've known him for 10 plus years. And he lives in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And he, he I look up to him in so many ways because he models so much, so well. But one of the things that he does is this. He has a ministry uh, that prioritizes fathers and sons. And he'll take a trip and take a busload of fathers and sons to spend a long couple of days with them to teach them from Scripture. And after he gets to know some of those men and those families, the ones that live close enough to him, years ago, about 11 years ago, he started an early morning Friday Bible study. A Bible study that quickly grew to more than 100 men that would show up at 5.30 in the morning for Bible study to continue to be shaped and reminded of the biblical principles that all of us who are Christian men are to be growing in. And when I talked to him this week, I said, help me understand how that all started. I told him I'm teaching, preaching on giving and service. And that story just came to my mind because there's a lot of giving and service to make that ministry happen. And he said, well, the first thing we needed was a, a place to meet. Where do you gather a hundred men in Charlotte, North Carolina, that's convenient for everybody? And he said, one of my friends said, well, I've got a friend who owns a, an Applebee's, I think it was, a restaurant. It's only open at night. Let me see if maybe out of the kindness of their heart, maybe they'll let us use their space. And sure enough, that's what happened. Somebody said, hey, I'm all for this. Use our space. Somebody willing to give, willing to serve by making space available. Well somebody's got to advertise and communicate and run communications. Who's willing to do that? Who will run those communications for? us? Somebody else. I'll make sure communications go out, advertisements that everybody's in the know. Somebody else giving and serving. Well somebody's got to be ready to speak if the hundred people show up, right? And that's not easy. And so that's what my friend did. He said, I'll be the one to make sure I cut out time in my week to have something to say from God's Word, to give and to serve the men, to help them grow in a common direction. And then you can imagine, that's just a few examples of the layers of giving and service that are required to make a good thing happen. So any part of you that thinks, you know, I'm just kind of a I'm a spectator in the church. I just kind of pop in and take in, and then I'll see you in a week. If any part of you this morning is being stirred to say, you know what, maybe I have been more of a spectator than a participant. If there's something for me to do, I'd be willing to give just a sliver of time or a little bit of effort or some talent that you have. That's how the kingdom and the best stuff happening in ministry always happens. It's by God's ordinary people doing the ordinary things within their abilities. And I could give you examples from this church, right? I don't want to do that because then it'll feel too personalized. But some of you, you carry a lot of weight, you carry a lot of load, you do a ton. That maybe rightly should be more divided and shared among the rest of you. So that we don't have spectators... And that many are participating. That old rule of thumb that 20% of the people do 80% of the work and the giving. that's, That's what I'm speaking to. What if we had a vision for a whole church of eager servants. Those eager to give to say, I believe that God is at work and I want to support that. I don't want to just be a spectator. I want to participate. My friend... The story I just told also told me this. He said, Paul, so many people do not understand that the greatest joy experienced is giving and serving to help others be blessed, whether it's financial resources or creating ministries to them. He said, Paul, that's the greatest joy of my life, is using what God has given me to have an open hand with it to serve and to give to others. He said, because we forget we are stewards of what God gives us. We're not owners. We're not possessors. We steward it on His behalf to use it for however He would. So consider your, your talents, your time, your resources. Have you found that great joy in using it for the King and for His kingdom? That's the kind of fruit that we should bear. Something about us, though, is so stingy. We're all so greedy. We love our time, our talent, and our money. But something about the kingdom is calling us to see that reversed. And the Lord says that as he grows us in this way, that you will find that the measure you use to give out is the measure that will be used to give to you. Now, that's the hard part of the sermon. It's what Jesus says in verse 38 of Luke chapter 6. The measure that you use to distribute to others will be the measure he uses to distribute to you. And so Jesus gets our attention there. The imagery there, by the way, does end up being one of beauty and grace. Let me read that again briefly. Verse 38 from Luke chapter 6. It says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here Jesus says positively something um, that they understood that we don't. So I'll just explain to you what I read about this this week. I won't model it in image form any more than I have to. But what I read told me this, the way that in the marketplace grain would be distributed and measured was the servant would have in his lap between his knees the, 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 the receiving, I didn't write this down and you can tell, the mechanism by which he would gather grain. A vat, let's call it a vat. And, you know, you could pour the grain in there and sell it and it looks full. But that's not how it was to truly be done. You would fill it with grain, and then he might, as if he had a hula hoop, picture me in a hula hoop, swirling and packing that grain down with a circular motion. And then maybe bouncing up and down with it, and then pressing on it, packing it down, and then saying, A little more grain, please. Let's make sure it's full for the customer before we take their money. And he would do it again. He'd swirl it around and pack it up and down and press it down to put a little bit more in until it was truly full. Now you and I in our own grocery experience, we know what a half full bag of Doritos looks like. We understand that's to keep them from breaking and all that. But your kids have said, why is this cereal bag not full? Why is, you know, why are the Doritos half empty when we buy them? We want things to be generous. We want things to be full. And Jesus is saying, that's how my people should be. Don't be skimpy. Know that the measuring cup you use, that's that's how the Lord will pour out grace and mercy in your life. He says he will pour it in, he will pack it down, he'll press it down, and give you more grace than you could ever hope for or dream for. That is what is to be true of every one of us. All of us. Givers, servers, with that mentality and that image. Every one of us. Not a Christian in the room escapes that call upon your life. Amen? That's true of all of you. Now, let me conclude the sermon with this. Let me tell you what's true of some of you and not true of all of you according to to Scripture. All of you... In Christ, called to be givers and servers in ministry to others. Some of you, some of you are called as Christians to serve in an office of ministry. Now this is where the scriptures are clear about the offices of elder and deacon. And you remember this sermon is about to conclude with an installation and ordination of a deacon. We are, in a sense, all servants of Christ Jesus. But we do believe the Scriptures say there is a special office that some are set apart for extra duty and service. To do a little bit more. To be dispensers of a little bit more grace and recipients of a little bit more grace in order to serve And so the Scriptures reveal the office of elder and deacon. I won't read about the elder. There we're told that elders are men. They're to be faithful to Christ Jesus, able to lead, able to teach, sound in Scripture and proven in their faith. We'll talk more about that another day. But for the deacon, the word deacon means servant. Listen to where this begins in Scripture. Two passages, first from Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Yes, there's a little cultural racial tension between the widows and who they were taking food to and who they were not taking it to. That's what's going on. So the twelve disciples gathered all the disciples together and said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word in order to wait on tables or to tend to the widows with food. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word This proposal pleased the whole group. And so they chose seven. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then Paul instructing Timothy about this practice of identifying elders and deacons. Of the deacons, he says this, Deacons, likewise, servants in an office of ministry, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so in Scripture we have this office of deacon, that it is good, it is right for the ministry of the Word to move forward by having some faithful men set apart, prayed over, hands laid on them to set them apart, That they might be busy serving the Lord and His church with tangible needs that always arise around ministry. So, this morning, we're going to ordain and install a deacon. And at this time, let me call Thomas Ropeman forward. I trust there he is. As Thomas comes, we have several things to, to do together, and this is both important. And beautiful. You stand right here. I'm going to speak to you for a moment. Uh, let me review for you all what has led to this moment. You might remember that months ago uh, we had a process of nominations in our church where you were asked to identify men that met that biblical criteria that I just read from, and to see if there were elders and deacons among us that we could agree. That this is the right time, this is the right place for this one to move forward in office. And so uh, Thomas was a name that came before us uh, to be nominated. He then went through a series of weeks of training, looking at our church doctrine, looking at the scriptures, looking at our book of church order, becoming more familiar with those to see if this was a good fit for him and for the church. ...to move towards being a deacon. And then that all concluded with his willingness... ...to have his name put before you for election. And some weeks ago, perhaps a month ago... ...Thomas was elected by the congregation... ...to serve as a deacon. And so that brings us to today. Where having been elected by this church to serve as a deacon... ...you now stand before us to answer the questions... ...from the BCO that you considered to affirm those, and then there'll be one question for you, the members of Greenwood Presbyterian Church. So six questions for you, Thomas. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, as originally given, to be the inerrant Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith And the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, that you will, on your own initiative, make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow?" Do you Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America, in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity, do you? Do you accept the office of ruling elder, excuse me, of deacon uh, in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof? And to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer, do you? And do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord, do you? And then lastly, do you promise to strive for the purity The peace, the unity, and the edification of the church. Do you? Amen. There's a question for the congregation. And Thomas, you can turn around and see their response to this. But you who are the members of Greenwood Presbyterian Church, do you acknowledge and receive this brother as a deacon? And do you promise to yield to him all that honor encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which His office, according to the Word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles Him. If you do, would you raise your hand? Amen, and thank you. Let me invite forward um, all elders and deacons of Greenwood Presbyterian Church, or if you are an elder or a deacon at a previous church, another church, you're welcome to come forward at this time also. We're going to pray for Thomas and lay hands on him. A word is, as you perhaps witnessed this for the first time, uh, you heard in the scriptures that the laying on of hands was a practice in the early church. And so we continue that practice. Nothing magical or powerful happening, but a moment for you to know and for him to know that God is at work and He is being set apart to the office that has been described. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks that you provide what your church needs. And so, for this man, for Thomas Ropeman, and for his family, we give you thanks in advance for the hours and for the efforts of serving Christ in his church. Would you bless him with a special measure of grace to give the little bit more that will be called upon him from time to time? Would you bless his wife and his children that they, like he, would be happy in their service of Christ and his church and given that little measure more of grace to be able to give more? And now, Lord, would you forever set him apart in his heart, in his mind, in his faith, and in his conduct to bear the office of deacon in a worthy manner that you might be blessed, that you might be praised in all that happens through his ministry. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.